Okay, well, every blessing to you all, and welcome back to Open Air Pulpits. Last time we arrived at Genesis 28:22, and please go back to 28:22. I want to read it one more time, if I may. And this stone, Jesus Christ, is referred to as the rock, which I have set for a pillar. The church is built on the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, with Jesus Christ, of course, being the chief cornerstone. Shall be God's house like Bethel, and of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So first of all, nobody forced Jacob to give anyone anything. He did so as a love offering, if you will. The book of Genesis, just for the record, covers a 2,000 year period or thereabouts, and Genesis concerns the Lord's people pre the law. And it's important that we keep that in mind. If you think of the account when Abraham met Melchizedek, he too would give him an offering. And Hebrews picks up on this. And many times people go to Hebrews and they say, well, there you are, you see, Hebrews are speaking about tithing, but keep it in mind, if you will, that when Hebrews was written, certainly pre-70 AD, and perhaps pre the Pauline epistles, the Jews, saved and unsaved, were still going to the temple they were still very much under the Mosaic Covenant. Whereas the Gentiles, from Pentecost onwards, didn't go to the temple, didn't sacrifice, didn't circumcise themselves and their sons, didn't observe dietary restrictions per se, because they weren't a part of the Old Covenant. So 28.22, at best is Jacob giving the Lord something back, and I'm not against giving the Lord something. I think if someone has helped you, you should give something, if you wish to, as a thank you. But it's not mandatory. And when I get to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in probably two to three weeks' time, I will spend some more time looking at that verse, which always gets cited, how the Lord loves a cheerful giver. But also, keeps in mind, if you will, as well, that the tithe, from the law onwards, like Exodus chapter 20, was for the upkeep of the Jewish temple. We have no temple today. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Number two, the tithe back in the Old Testament was for the upkeep, for the overheads, for the financing of the priests, for the Old Testament temple. We have no priests for the New Testament. We are a royal priesthood. So it's very difficult to go back to the Old Testament, which many people try and do, read passages such as this, and then cross-reference them to the book of Hebrews and say, well, there you are, you see, Hebrews is speaking about a tithe, and therefore we should be tithing today. No. Hebrews, one more time, was written quite possibly pre the Pauline epistles, but even if it was written during the Pauline epistles or after the Pauline epistles, it makes no difference. Hebrews is a Jewish book written to Jewish believers. It's very difficult to read Hebrews and take doctrine from that and apply it to the Gentile wing of the body of Christ. So the tenth is a tenth, and it was given as a love offering, if you will. Or, look at it this way. Exodus chapter 20 speaks about honoring your mother and your father. Mandatory for the Old Testament, mandatory for the New Testament. Paul the Apostle comes along and he says to give double honour to the elders, those that 
work alongside you, those at labor, among you, those that read the scriptures, study the scriptures, and you think straight away back to Exodus 20, well, you didn't pay your parents, did you? Of course you didn't. So why would you pay the elders in the New Testament? You wouldn't, of course. But if you want to give something, like a donation, an offering, that's fine. But a tithe, like 10% or 25% or 50% is out. It's not mandatory, but if you want to give something along those lines, that's fine, it's up to you. 29.9, 29.9. And while he had spake with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. So go back to what I said last week. You've got Isaac and his wife. Both saved, I believe. Both have received this great promise that Jacob will be the leader, that Jacob will one day be Israel, that from Jacob the Messiah will come. Of course, they weren't told that part of the truth, but they were told that Jacob would be in the driving seat and Esau would be in submission to him, and yet they lacked faith. And I spent quite a bit of time last week looking at the repercussions of their lack of faith and the pain it caused their sons, especially Esau. But at the same time, let's not forget Romans 8.28, how the Lord works all things together for his own good to those that are the called, to those that belong to him. A slight paraphrase, excuse me. But Romans 8.28 is a great verse for the sovereignty of the Lord and also the free will of man. And somehow those two come together in a way that we don't quite understand. So the Lord looked at Isaac and his wife, uh, being Rebecca, and he saw their shenanigans. He saw their shameful behavior, and he saw their boys very much caught up in this marital uh, interference, shall we say, the wife trying to stop Esau getting a blessing, although the promise had been given that he wouldn't, she lacked the faith. And the Lord said this, no doubt, to the Godhead, that, well, let it run its course, because whatever they do will make no difference whatsoever. I will have Jacob to become Israel, and I will have Esau to become Edom. Jacob have I loved, being Israel. Edom, being a nation, have I hated. And again, that's based on foreknowledge. But it's got to a stage now where Rebecca is aware that Esau is planning, plotting to murder his brother. And she says to her husband, it's time to get Jacob to safety. Also, keep it in mind, if you will, that they weren't boys. I think I used the term boys a couple of times last week. They were 40 and still living at home, which is somewhat of an interesting note to observe. So they weren't little boys, they were grown men. They were certainly old enough to know the difference between right and wrong. So Jacob has been sent out and here he's found Rachel and she's keeping her father's sheep for she kept them, verse 10. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled a stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So he's taken the initiative. Nothing wrong with a man pursuing a woman. And here you've got Rachel, verse 9, being spotted by Jacob, verse 10. And Laban is here 
in reference to Jacob's uncle. It is fair to say that in the Old Testament, especially the first book from the Old Testament, you had siblings marrying one another. It wasn't outlawed, it wasn't illegal, it wasn't an incest uh, incident which would take place later post the law. And before you turn your nose up at that, if you're not one of the Lord's people, if you hold to the evolution view, they believe that the big mama evolved in Africa and from the big mama, everyone came from her. And they too have a issue on the hands when it comes to explaining how we all got here. The big mama would have had to reproduce somehow and they're not particularly sure how she was able to reproduce but once she had reproduced her children would have would have had to have mate, mated to then reproduce. So the evolution route follows a creation route concerning incest but even that term incest isn't really correct because the gene pool was very different uh, certainly pre uh, certainly pre the law. Verse 11, and Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. So we have some contact. Now sometimes you read about people that meet and they court, or the term for the day is they date, and sometimes they hold hands, sometimes they don't, sometimes they will kiss, sometimes they will not. But here Jacob takes the bull by the horns, as they say, and he kisses Rachel and then he lifts up his voice and weeps. Jacob, 40-something, very emotional, and he has seen this woman, and it's probably fair to say it was love at first sight. 12, and Jacob told Rachel that he was a father's brother, and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So she knows she's met her cousin, and like I say in the Old Testament, especially from the book of Genesis, yes, you had siblings marrying one another. You had cousins marrying one another. But the gene pool was somewhat different, shall we say. On top of that, one more time, the law hasn't yet been given. This type of behavior wouldn't be accepted post the law, like Exodus chapter 20. 13. And it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. So you will see very clearly that, number one, this is a family affair, that Laban, like his daughter, runs to meet Jacob. And if you think of Laban, he is a type of Jacob. Or put it this way, when Jacob met Laban, he met his match. Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob was a plotter. Jacob stole the birthrights from his brother. Jacob stole the blessing from his brother. Jacob wasn't the sort of guy you'd want to associate with, shall we say. But if there's one thing that I love about the Old Testament, it has got to be that when I read it, I am very much able to relate to some of the greats pre their salvation, during their salvation, and post their salvation, or before the law, during the law, and after the law. 
And don't turn your noses up so quickly at some of the accounts found in the book of Genesis because those people, for the most part, were the Lord's people. And that's why such graphic accounts were written throughout the Old Testament. So when people like you and I would come along many years later and read such an account of this or that, we could probably relate to a lot of what would take place in the Old Testament. Going back to my earlier statement from last week, how nobody is perfect. Nobody was sinless before the law, during the law, or after the law. Nobody was perfect uh, pre their salvation, during their salvation, or after their salvation. Only Jesus Christ, of course, would be the exception to that. Look at verse 14, please. And Laban said to him, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. So, Laban thinks this. Jacob is this well-to-do man. He is related. Jacob was Laban's nephew. And Jacob and uh, Rachel are cousins. Jacob, I would imagine, was a pretty healthy sort of guy. Could put a good day's work in. And Laban thinks this, that why not allow Jacob to enter into my family fold, work the land, as it were, and contribute to the welfare of my family, to the welfare of my estate. I don't want to hire somebody from outside of my circle. Going back to last week, separation, segregation. If you are a saved person and you are associating whether personally or professionally, with unsaved people, that is problematic. 15. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest not thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? Now, you were told very clearly that Jacob was Laban's nephew. You were told very clearly that Jacob's mother, Rebekah, was Laban's sister. But when you come across Catholic commentaries, or if you speak to Catholics about scriptures such as this, or the New Testament concerning the brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will say, well, here you find the term brother used, and yet it's not all that it seems to be. Well, number one, from the New Testament, when we read about Christ and his brethren, we can't help but miss that they are his literal brethren. There's no suggestion, there's no inference that they were his cousins. But here, the term brother has been used, verse 15, to denote fellowship, intimacy. And I think it probably started off all very well. I think Laban took a shine to Jacob, and that's why he calls him his brother, although he wasn't his brother, he was his uncle, and... Uh, Jacob was his nephew. Shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Is it right for you to work the land for nothing? Also feeding back to the New Testament, <coughs> how the laborer, the laborer is worthy of his hire. And Paul would also pick up this message from uh, 1 Corinthians 9, that for an evangelist, especially who goes out full time, he is entitled to be supported financially. But a salary? A stipend? Absolutely not. Shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? 
tell me what shall thy wages be? So it starts off all very well. Like I say, Jacob has arrived. He's met Rachel, love at first sight. She clicks with him, shall we say. She runs to her father to tell him that Jacob has arrived. He runs out to meet Jacob. This is almost reminiscent to the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15, but not quite. Tell me what shall thy wages be? You're not going to be a slave. You won't work for a pittance. I want to give you what you are worthy to receive. During the Russian Revolution, the Russians were very much under the kosh. You had the Tsar in place, Tsar Nicholas, called Nikki, and Tsar Nicholas, the Roman officer, been around for a long time, like 300 years. And during their rise to power, the people were kept down, much like in Britain under King Charles I, and the Bolsheviks uh, arrived. People like Lenin, people like Trotsky, and uh, Joseph Stalin down the line, and this group of hardline, hardline left-wing atheists didn't like uh, the Romanovs, wanted to overthrow the Romanovs, and like Cromwell back in the uh, 17th century, they waited and they planned and they plotted. And when the time was right, they were able to rise up like 1917, force the Tsar to abdicate. He resigned his throne and he thought somewhat naively that he could flee abroad. He was cousins with uh, George V in England. He was also related to the Kaiser in Germany. And letters were exchanged on behalf of the Tsar with the interim government before Lenin arrived on the scene. And uh, the Tsar thought he could get away. He thought he could flee to Britain or Europe. And the response came back, you're not wanted. You, you've had your time, your day has been and gone. And he was held under house arrest. He was moved initially from Moscow, or it may have been St. Petersburg, to Siberia with his uh, four daughters and his uh, disabled son. And he was there for quite a period of time, and he was thinking to himself this, that perhaps with this nice Mr. Lenin calling the shots, this uh, top-degree Freemason, this Darwinist, this atheist, that perhaps he will show clemency to my family and I and release us. I mean, talk about being naive. And of course, what took place was they were all shot, assassinated. Lenin gave the order to eliminate them all. But during that time, you've got the Russian people working in slime pits, working for a pittance, kept down by the, by the Tsar and his leaders like Charles I would do in Britain. And yet what intrigues me is why so many historians, when they look at Charles and Cromwell, will slate Cromwell's role in liberating the Brits from Charles and yet, when they look at Lenin's role, liberating, quote-unquote, the Russians from the Tsar, they don't seem to criticize Lenin. Because if the truth be known, from 1917 to 1989, there was no freedom in Russia. You couldn't vote for your leader. You couldn't speak out against the way things were conducted. And if you did, the KGB would track you down, arrest you, interrogate you, and perhaps even kill you. So here, Laban will take care 
of his nephew. He won't treat him like slave labor. And like I say, so far so good. Look at verse 16, please. And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Was Rachel. Two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And these two girls are around this time oblivious as to their role in the future state of Israel. Going back to Romans 8.28, that whatever happens, good or bad, once the Lord has decreed something to happen, it will happen. And you can go back to the account one more time of Isaac and his wife behaving very shamefully, trying to thwart, in some ways, the will of the Lord, trying to bring forward the blessing. And the Lord sat back and, like I say, said to the Godhead, well, let it run its course. Nothing will change anyway. They will hurt themselves along the way, but they won't hurt me. And here, Leah and Rachel are in the wings to do something quite remarkable, like Cromwell, like Lenin also to some extent. In fact, go back to the Bolsheviks and the Romanovs. The Romanovs were Russian Orthodox, very superstitious, and they had a guy called uh, Rasputin who worked, or was affiliated, shall I say, to the Romanovs, and uh, Rasputin was a very controversial character, and uh, Patrick has written about him. Very superstitious, would claim to receive visions and prophecies, and yet was a very immoral man. I think, if the truth be known, he took in the Tsar and his wife. But with the decline of the official faith in Russia, being the Russian Orthodox Church, you had atheism introduced, you had Darwinism introduced, and by 1989, probably 50 to 100 million Russians had been murdered. But when Cromwell took over from Charles I, he didn't kill tens of thousands. He didn't even kill hundreds. So to say that somehow Cromwell was a dictator like Lenin is an injustice. It's incorrect. It's a slur. But unfortunately, people that write history are nearly always brainwashed. They don't seem to want to be open-minded. They don't want to give someone like Cromwell a fair crack at the whip, or they will slate Cromwell and completely bypass Lenin, Trotsky, and Joseph Stalin, who were the real monsters. If the truth be known, the people in Russia went from one wicked system to another. But anyway, let's keep moving on. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. So, Jacob has come across Laban, his uncle. But before that, he's come across his cousin, Rachel. Beautiful, and she's a sister called Leah, who's tender-eyed. 18. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy daughter. Excuse me, for Rachel, thy younger daughter. So it is fair to say that during the Old Testament, on many occasions, when a boy met girl, he would go via the father and say, for example, can I have your permission to wed your daughter? Or, as we're reading this morning, he's going to work for the daughter, like seven years. Loves her, 
I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. 19. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. So it does appear on the surface that <clears throat> Rachel and Leah, but here Rachel is the property of Laban. Before a, uh, before a young girl gets married, she comes under her father's covering. Once she gets married, she comes under her husband's covering. If she hasn't a father, or if she hasn't a husband, she comes un under the covering of a church or an elder. But here, Laban is a very complex character, and he's trying to plan ahead. Like I say, he's a bit like Jacob. He's trying to plan ahead. He's a bit of a schemer. It is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Colon, abide with me. Twenty, and Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. I don't think he believed Jacob for one moment that he would meet such a beautiful woman, fall in love with such a beautiful woman, and then have to work seven years to receive such a woman. But this is the Lord's way of molding people. This is the Lord's way of disciplining his people. Go back to the birthright issue. Go back to the blessing issue. How slimy and slippery and sly Jacob was. And all of that was building up to what he's now about to experience. And what do they say? Uh, you reap what you sow. Absolutely the case. Or what goes around comes around. Another term which they use. And that's also very much the case. But these are seven years. It's no problem for him. And you could say perhaps this is a type of the tribulation which will run seven years. But not quite. When it comes to types and shadows, incidentally, you won't always get a perfect match. There are many accounts in the Old Testament which, when you read, you will struggle to find the New Testament equivalent. Or if you read an account or two from the Old Testament, you will struggle to get an Old Testament equivalent. But either way, you've got the people of the Lord coming together. You've got Jacob out of his comfort zone, working for his future wife. Seven years become like seven days. Why? Because he loved her. 21. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. So he has had enough of waiting. He's been waiting and waiting. And from my observation of such a passage, she was very patient. I mean, to meet a girl, to fall in love with her, to wait seven years before he consummates the marriage is a long time. 22, and Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. So, to the best of my knowledge, this will be the first explicit marriage in the scripture. But note a few things. Number one, no priest is present. Number two, no pastor is present. Number three, no rings 
have exchanged hands. It's a feast. It's a meal. It's a family affair. And I'll discuss marriages very shortly. 23. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him. And he went in unto her, like to lie with her, like to sleep with her, thinking that Leah is Rachel. 24. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah, Zippah, his maid for an handmaid. So Laban is planning. Laban is plotting. Laban is scheming. And Laban wants to offload both of his daughters onto Jacob, along with their maidservants. It's fair to say that this is a middle-class family. I mean, just to have servants working for them would suggest they were well-to-do, shall we say. 25. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? What goes around comes around, you reap what you sow. Kind of writ coming from Jacob, who would beguile his brother Esau. But at the same time, to be fair to Jacob, he has been deceived. The deal was quite simply that he would work seven years for the right to Rachel's hand. And somehow during the night, he's gone in, it's dark. I would imagine Leah was veiled, hence why he wasn't able to see her face. He lies with her, a term for intercourse. And in the morning he wakes up and realizes to his horror that it's Leah. 26, and Laban said, it must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. So we are still very much pre the law. But once the law was given, this type of incident, this type of situation was outlawed. And yet, if you look at the Mormons, if you look at Joseph Smith, he was notorious for this kind of thing. I mean, he would marry dozens of women. He would marry other men's wives. He would take mothers and daughters. He took one girl who was just 13. And that's why they killed him, the Masons. In fact, the last thing that Smith said before he was killed by the Masons was, is there any mercy for the widow's son? He was a Freemason. He stole secrets from the Freemasons. If that wasn't bad enough, if that didn't uh, result in his execution, he also took their wives, their daughters, for his own. And the Freemasons tracked him down and killed him. But before that, he would take wives from his congregation, other people's wives, of course. He would take children from his congregation, other people's children, of course. And he would say that the Lord told me that your wife is now my wife or your daughter is now my wife. And like I say, by the age of his, or by the stage of his, uh, by the time of his death, by the time of his death, he had over 46 wives. And if you speak to Mormons, those that practice polygamy, bigamy, they will go to parts of the Old Testament and say, well, there you are, you see. If the patriarchs could do it, why can't we? Well, first of all, there are no patriarchs today. Number two, this is pre the law. But number three, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, you won't find anyone who had more than one wife. 
but for the Old Testament, yes, it would take place pre the law and post the law. And no, the Lord didn't condone of it. He would allow it to run its course, Romans 8.28, because he had a greater plan. He would allow the sins of the saints to take place and use their deeds, their actions, for his ultimate purpose. So, marriage, the Bible, today. What intrigues me is when I look at the scripture and I look at marriages, I don't find anybody exchanging rings. I don't find any priests or prophets overseeing such a ceremony. A typical wedding in the scripture would run to a week. John chapter 2, the Lord Jesus Christ was invited to a marriage in Cana. Wine was produced and the Lord would even turn water into wine. Of course, it was heavily diluted. It would be difficult to get drunk on wine. Back in the times of the Bible, well, that wasn't impossible, of course. Noah got drunk. So the weddings that we read about in Scripture are very different to the, wed to the weddings that we read about today or that we see today. Which got me thinking yesterday in preparation for today's video, and now it's getting rather windy, I just wonder how many weddings have taken place since Pentecost and on top of that whether or not they are legitimate weddings. Let's say you get married in a Mormon steakhouse. Does the Lord recognize it? Let's say you get married in a Kingdom Hall. Does the Lord recognize it? Let's say you get married in, in an SDA church. Does the Lord recognize it? Let's say you get married in a Catholic church. Does the Lord recognize it? Let's say get married in an apostate church or a oneness church. Does the Lord recognize it? You have children born to you after being married in such places. Does the Lord recognize it? Interesting to ponder such a thought because the scripture tells you that this was the type of ceremony which would take place Adam and Eve came together, no marriage took place, no rings were exchanged, no JP oversaw the service. The Lord didn't bring them together in a physical sense. They, of course, produced offspring, and away we went. And of course, we refer to such as mankind, the human race. But when you look at the New Testament, to the best of my knowledge, as I stand here this morning, I can't think of any verse any clear, explicit verse in the New Testament as to what a marriage concerning saved Gentiles would consist of, which leads me to believe that anyone who got saved in Corinth and got married in Corinth, or anyone who got saved in Ephesus and got married in Ephesus, or anyone who got saved in Galatia and married in Galatia, and I'm referring to such as being Gentiles, of course, probably followed the Old Testament Jewish method of a week-long ceremony in the presence, of course, of friends and family, but rings exchanging hands, or jewelry, shall we say, exchanged or passed around, isn't uh, what was the norm. And yet, 
Catholics, marry in churches, Protestants marry in churches, the JWs, the Mormons, the SDA, the Freemasons, any theistic system that you can think of, all get married by their minister in their churches. And yet it's very difficult to acknowledge that in light of scripture. Let's keep reading on, please. 28. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. And he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to wife also. So Laban is head of the family. The daughters come under his control. They take his surname. And when they would marry Jacob, they take his surname. That hasn't changed, incidentally. Any woman who is married, unless she's a hardline feminist, will take her husband's surname for her own. If they have children, the children take their father's name as their surname. 29. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, Bilah, his handmaid, to be her maid. So Zilpah, 24, is Leah's handmaid, and Bilah, 29, is Rachel's handmaid. You've got four women. You've got one man. Let's not be crude when we think about such an account. Let's not be too quick to read such a passage and speak about it or approach it with a crude concept. Again, this is pre the law. This is in anticipation for the future state of Israel. Would this happen again? No. Did the Lord or would the Lord bless this potential for, make that a five-way union? Not necessarily. But Romans 8, 28, speaks about how all things work together for good to those that love God, to those which are the called according to his purpose. So he will sit back, the Lord, and allow this to run its course. Yes, he could have said this to the Godhead. He could have said this. Well, let's just allow Jacob to marry Rachel and let's allow Rachel to produce 12 sons. If you go back to someone like uh, John Wesley, he was one of 17 children. Or Cromwell and his wife, they had nine children. So when we think of the greats going back over the years, there are many occasions of the greats coming from large families or producing many children. But that's not how this is going to play out, which again goes back to people like you and I being able to relate to some of the greats when they were carnal and when they weren't carnal. If you want to find someone sinless in the scripture, you will need to look very, very carefully, apart from Jesus Christ, of course. 30. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. So he's gone in, he's consummated the marriage, he loves uh, Rachel more than Leah. <clears throat> to be fair to him, he never wanted Leah. He got stuck with her and he's now got two maids. So he's got four women. And also these women are referred to as wives. And I'll come back and discuss that shortly. 31. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah was hated. 
Jesus was hated. And here the Lord steps in and he opens the womb of Leah because he is sovereign. Rachel is barren and she is incredulated by that because number one, she was the eldest of the two. And in her mind, she probably thought she should be the first to fall pregnant by her husband, who no doubt she loved very much. And yet that's not how this is going to play out. 32, and Leah conceived and bare a son. And she called his name Reuben. For she said, surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. Well, she would have hoped that would be the case. She would have hoped that with her firstborn, being born to Jacob and also being a boy, being a man, that this would really gel her together with her husband. And many times people come together to get married. The marriage is in trouble and they hope they are of the opinion that if a child is born, that somehow it will glue the couple together or bring them closer together. And the truth be known, many times it will cause them to drift even further apart. She also gives the Lord credit for falling pregnant and giving birth to Reuben, going back to Eve, giving the Lord credit for the birth of Abel and also Cain. 33. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated. He hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. So she got two sons, born probably within a year. And these women are going to produce at least 13 children in rapid succession. Because time was of the essence, of course. 34. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi, or Levi, depending on how you pronounce it. So three sons, probably born over three consecutive years. And here, <coughs> Leah is churning them out, as they say, without being too crude. She is producing son after son, she is being blessed with healthy children and she hopes that the birth of three sons will allow her to be greatly loved, more loved by her husband, <coughs> excuse me. But of course she has the problem of her sister, Rachel, not far behind. And you've got these two sisters very much mirroring Jacob and Esau in competition, despising one another. 35. And she conceived again and bare a son. And she said, now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left bearing. Now Judah has arrived. And of course Judah is the great, great, great grandfather of Jesus Christ. David will feed into Judah and Jesus will feed into David. It's all linked up. 
And that's another great thing when it comes to the scripture. Such and such begat such and such, who begat such and such, who begat such and such, who begat such and such. And yet saying that, let me say this. So what? I spoke to a Jew. He was a rabbi. And he told me, well, we can trace our lineage back to Abraham. I don't doubt that. But so what? Are you saved? If you speak to the Catholic Church, they believe their popes can be traced back to Peter. I don't believe that, incidentally. There have been many popes throughout the last 1,000 years that killed one another. Uh, there were occasions where, when there were more than one pope. There's more than one pope on the throne, quote-unquote. But even if you could prove that, even if there was this wonderful unbroken chain from the current Pope going back to Peter, so what? Are you born again? Are you saved? Sometimes people take great pride, great delight in this so-called unbroken line for the Jews or for the Catholics. But big deal. If you're not born again, you are lost. Judah, 35. Levi, 34. Reuben, 32. And Simon, 33. Four boys, born one after the other. And these four boys are going to be the pillars of the Old Testament church. And yes, we can refer to the Old Testament in type as a church. What I don't know is whether or not these boys, these men, as they would later become, of course, were all saved. I would like to think that all of the sons born to Rachel, Leah, and their handmaidens were all saved. I'd like to think that, but I don't know that. We don't know how many people from the Old Testament were saved. We don't even know if Adam and Eve were saved. We can guess, we can speculate, but we just don't know. But these boys will be given a chance, like all, all people, are given a chance. When you were first born, it speaks about Christ lighting every man that comes into the world. And every man or woman, boy or girl, when they're first born, is given the chance. Isn't just eliminated due to Adam's sin. The Lord is very merciful, not when any should perish. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he will sit back for a long time. And he will give people chance after chance after chance. And the moment that child turns the age of accountability, and of course no two, no two children are the same, then it all, it, all, uh, it all changes. The very moment the boy or the girl comes of age, it all changes. Because they are now, strictly speaking, accountable to the Lord. They can't hide behind ignorance because they now, they now know the difference. They now know the difference between right and wrong. In fact, I was asked a question a few days ago about what will happen during the tribulation to those young children pre the age of accountability that go into the tribulation with their parents if they take the mark of the beast. Well, number one, the mark of the beast, as I understand it, is only going to be relevant to adults. But even if children are forced to take the mark of the beast, if they are pre the age of accountability, then the Lord sees them as innocent. And therefore their salvation, should they die of course, uh, is guaranteed. The problem 
would then be asked, well, what happens when they grow up? And they now turn the age of accountability and they've taken the mark of the beast. Well, at that stage, they are accountable to the Lord. And at that stage, he would judge them based on right from wrong. But should a child in the tribulation take the mark of the beast pre the age of accountability and die pre the age, uh, pre the age of accountability, then as far as I understand the scriptures, they are safe in the arms of our Savior. I mean, what sort of God do we worship? I mean, can we honestly say that our God would torture children that died pre the age of accountability because their parents foolishly gave them the mark of the beast? I mean, is that what we want to hold to as Bible believers, that our great God would torture three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, ten-year-olds for taking the mark of the beast because their parents were unsaved heathen? Of course not. What would Christ say? Suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. But once they turn the age of accountability, then it's a whole different ball game. 30 verse 1. And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, give me children or else I die. So number one, Rachel is beloved. Number two, in her mind and Jacob's, they are technically and legitimately a married couple. Leah has got in through the back door, if you will. She has seen four boys born to her younger sister over four consecutive years. That has caused her great pain, not to mention embarrassment, because she's the eldest of the two, and she can't comprehend as to why it's going this way, and therefore she wants Jacob to do something for her. But what can Jacob do? I mean, Jacob will become Israel, meaning prince, but Jacob didn't have any supernatural powers. In fact, as I stand here, as I stand here this morning, I can't think of uh, any miracles being done by the patriarchs in the first book of the Bible. In fact, the signs and wonders wouldn't appear on the scene until Exodus concerning Moses and Aaron. In fact, as you read through Genesis, I can't find of any, I can't find any sickness throughout the book of Genesis. Sickness pre the fall was unheard of. Sickness post the fall was unheard of. Apart from, of course, Isaac becoming almost blind. But of course, the population around the world is starting to open up, double, quadruple. You got couples marrying, their life expectancy expectancy is reducing. Uh, sin is still all around them, and you are what you eat. So people will die earlier, younger. But here Rachel is barren. She feels like a failure, which in the ancient world, uh, you weren't uh, with child, you were seen as a failure. People look down upon you. And she says to her husband, type of Christ, give me children or else I die. And of course she would die later on in childbirth. Verse two, and Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in God's stead? Who hath withheld from thee the fruits of the womb? I'm not God. I'm not all powerful. I can't just 
clip my fingers and decree it that you become pregnant, the patriarchs would also live by faith. There were things that they could do, there were things that they could not do. But here, Rachel is desperate. She feels like she's being left behind. She can see her, uh, she can see her husband having children, one after the other with her sister, and it's causing problems. And here Jacob snaps and he says one more time, am I in God's stead? Who hath withheld from thee the fruits of the womb? I haven't withheld from you the fruits of the womb. That's what he's saying. If you want to fall pregnant, take it upstairs. Don't blame me. Three, and she said, Behold my maid Billa, go in unto her, and she shall bear upon my knees, that I may also have children by her. She's going to be a surrogate mother. Now, when we think about surrogates today, we are aware that if two men come together, they want to have children, which is now the norm, I'm afraid to say, and yet they have a problem. Two men can't produce a baby. Two women cannot produce a baby. So someone somewhere has to step forward and make it happen. Of course, for the two men, they need a woman. And for the two women, they need a man. You can't get around it. And yet they will try. And here, Rachel will do what Sarah did. And she will send Bilhah, or Bilhah, her servant, to lie with her husband and give her children. Four. And she gave him Bilhah, her handmaid, her wife. And Jacob went in unto her. So, number one, no ring has taken place, no uh, ceremony has taken place. And number three, this woman had no choice in the matter because Leah and Rachel were middle-class girls. They had servants, maids that worked for them, which, if the truth be known, were their property. And therefore, when the mistress said, go in, they went in. I throw back to uh, Sarah and Hagar. This is a theme that pops up a few times in the Old Testament, but for the New Testament, for the New Covenant, you won't even come anywhere near this type of behavior. Five, and Bilhah conceived and bare Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God hath judged me and hath also heard my voice and hath given me a son, therefore, called she his name Dan. Dan could be the tribe affiliated to the Antichrist. Dan would fall into idolatry, which is the main sin, incidentally, in the scripture. Idolatry, like using images to worship the one true God, or worshipping stones, sticks, or worshipping people. That's the main sin in the scripture. Idolatry. Seven, and Billa, Rachel's maid, conceived again and bare Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings, have I wrestled with my sister? And I have prevailed, and she called his name Nephthali. So you've got two sisters jockeying for positions. You've got two sisters now in competition with one another. And you've got two sisters 
not only wanting to please their husband, please their man, but you've got two sisters using their maids to speed up the process. Nine. When Leah saw that she had left bearing, she took Zilpah, her wife, and gave her Jacob to wife. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a son. And Leah said, A troop cometh, and she called his name Gad. So the women are taking the initiative. The women are producing the children. The women are naming the children, which is also interesting. Twelve. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. And she called his name Asa, or Asher. So, let's just quickly recap. A lot of kids are being born here. From uh, 29.1, Reuben is born to Leah. Reuben is the first boy born to Leah. Then, verse 33, Simeon is born to Leah. Uh, 34, Levi, or Levi, is born to Leah. Verse uh, 4, Judah is born to Leah. And then she stops for, for a period of time. 31, 30, verse 1, Rachel is desperate. She's being left behind. And the older a woman gets, the less, li the less likely it is that she will have children. So she starts to panic, also lacking faith in the Lord's promise. And she sends her maid, her handmaid, her servant, her slave into Jacob. And like most men in the scripture, he's weak, doesn't think twice about it. In he goes, gets her pregnant. And she starts to produce children like Dan, verse 6, like Nepali, verse 8. Uh, Gad, verse 11. And by verse 13, Leah is taking credit for the birth of Asher. Eight boys, all born very quickly, thanks to three, make that four women. Fourteen. And Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them unto his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Give me, I pray thee, of thy son's mandrakes. Reuben is around seven, eight, He's found mandrakes in the field, some kind of a plant. He tells his mother what he's found. And within five minutes, Rachel has got wind of this. And she's desperate to get her hands on this. Verse 15. And she said unto her, Is it a small thing that thou hast taken my husband? And wouldest thou take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore he shall lie with thee tonight for thy son's mandrakes. Superstitious. These women are now bartering. They're now bargaining. They are agreeing as to which one of them will lie with Jacob. Going back to that chap I spoke about some videos ago in America who's got four wives. And from his four wives, he's got 16 children. And guys like him would read verses such as this and say, well, there you are, you see. If they could do it, why can't I? Or the Muslims will say, if the patriarchs could do it, why can't I? Well, number one, you're not a patriarch. Number two, if you offer yourself as a Christian, 
or if you offer yourself as a believer of the book, you are under the new covenant. There's no concubines in the new covenant. There's no mortal wives in the new covenant. Such would be shameful. But here you've got Leah and Rachel, superstitious, lacking faith, and are prepared to share Jacob with one another. 17. And God hearkened unto Leah, and she conceived, and bare Jacob the fifth son. So the Lord's sovereignty comes through time after time. He wouldn't condone of this type of behavior, and he wouldn't condemn this type of behavior as well, which also goes back to progressive revelation. Of course, they had consciences back in the Old Testament, like pre the law. They knew uh, when they were doing wrong. In fact, I gave you an account some weeks ago of one of the Gentile kings who got uh, sight of Isaac and his wife sporting, meaning he was caressing his wife, and he knew within five minutes that such were a couple, not siblings, and he would say to Isaac, why have you done this? Why have you brought this guilt upon our kingdom? Somebody would have taken your wife for their own. And the text goes on to say how the Lord would, or how the Lord withheld that Gentile leader from taking uh, Isaac's wife for his own. They knew the difference between right and wrong. We know the difference today between right and wrong. But what we've learned to do is suppress our consciences or we go to college, we go to university, and we are educated out of believing, listening, obeying our consciences. And people say, well, I'm an adult, I can do what I like, don't you judge me, blah, 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 and yet they're just kidding themselves. They know right from wrong. But what can you do if somebody has made up their minds to do wrong? 17, she's got her fifth son, 18. And Leah said, God hath given me my hire, because I've given my maiden, because I've given my maiden to my husband. And she called his name Isaacar. So once again, the women are naming the children. Jacob is doing what was expected of him with four women, and they are being produced at a very rapid rate. 19. And Leah conceived again, and bare Jacob the sixth son. And Leah said, God hath endured me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me, because I have borne him six sons. And she called his name Zebulon or Zebulun. So she thought, surely by now, I've got six sons. Surely by now, Jacob, the man that she was in love with, will love me. But Jacob's heart was with Rachel, which you could suggest is a picture of the Lord's love for his church. Jacob and Rachel and Leah, if you will, is a picture of the world, like John 3.16. The Lord has a greater love for the church, of course, and a lesser love for the world. Leah was despised. Leah was the underdog. And she thinks by verse... 20 with the arrival of child number 10 that she will be greatly beloved by her husband 
but she doesn't appreciate that Jacob only really has eyes for one woman. 21. And afterwards, she bet a daughter and called her name Dinah, or Dina. 22. And God remembered Rachel, and God hearkened to her and opened her womb. So you were told to pray until you pray. You were told to never stop praying. And sometimes if you pray a lot for a particular person or a particular situation, and you think to yourself, I've been praying for so many years for this or for that, it hasn't happened. But with Rachel, she got what she had been praying for. The Lord remembered her and he opened her womb. 23, as she conceived and bare a son and said, God hath taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. So she's got one more son. In fact, this is her first son. Let me describe myself. She's finally given birth to Joseph. And she knows that there's one more to come, like Benjamin. She's waited a long time. And again, she credits the Lord with her children. Her son doesn't just say, well, it evolved by chance. She doesn't go down the evolution route. She's a creationist. The Lord shall add to me another son. And he certainly would, but not straight away. 25, and it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, send me away, that I may go unto mine own place and to my country. So, Jacob has been working for Laban for around 20 years. Around 20 years. He served his Jews, as they say. He has been molded indirectly. He's been prepared indirectly. He's had to work for a pretty difficult guy, being his uh, uncle, of course. And now he wants to leave with his wives. And that term, wives, isn't just in reference to Leah and Rachel, but also in reference to their made servants because when flesh meets flesh in the Bible that is a picture of a marriage 27 and Laban said unto him I pray thee if I have found favor in thine eyes tarry for I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake absolutely he watched Jacob for many years he watched Jacob's cattle doing very well for themselves. He watched the fat of the land increase. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. Feeding back into the need for those of us today to stand with Israel, to pray for Israel, to be gracious and kind to the Jews, to stand against anti-Semitism, to stand against replacement theology especially. 28, and he said, Appoint me thy wages, and I will give it. Just pay me and let me go. 29, and he said unto him, Thou knowest how I have served thee, and how thy cattle was with me. For it was little which thou, hast, which thou hadst before I came, and it is now increased unto a multitude. And the Lord hath blessed thee since my coming, and now when shall I provide for mine own house also? I need to spread my wings, Laban. I need to get out from under your feet. I need to be my own man. I've got 11 children by this time. I've got four wives. It's time for me to move on. I can't remain under your authority any longer. 
31, and he said, What shall I give thee? And Jacob said, Thou shalt not give me anything. If thou wilt do this thing for me, I will again feed my, I will again feed and keep thy flock. I will pass through all thy flock today, removing from thence all the speckled and spotted cattle, and all the brown cattle among the sheep and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and of such shall be my hire. That's the last thing that Laban would want uh, Jacob to do, because like I say, Jacob's livestock was healthy, very productive, would reproduce on a much greater scale than Laban's, and what Laban doesn't want to do is have Jacob going around separating the good from the bad. 43, and the man increased exceedingly and had much cattle and maid servants and men servants and camels and asses. He started with almost nothing, which is a great picture of the grace of God. Like not only would he never leave you, he also would never forsake you. And if you start off with nothing, and remain faithful to the Lord, he will bless you abundantly. Jacob went out on a promise. Jacob got saved by believing on a promise. Jacob met his future wife, spent seven years working for her. Those seven years were like days. And you know the rest, I've just read it to you. By this stage, his wife, his beloved, has given him one son directly and others indirectly. Rachel, on the other hand, the less of the two, the least loved of the two, has given him six sons. Who would have thought that? 31.1 And he heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob hath taken away all that was our father's, and of that which was our father's hath he gotten all this glory. So now they are starting to resent the fact that Jacob is on the way out and he'll take his wife's, his children and his livestock with him and they know that once he leaves their community will collapse. They were comfortable, shall we say, before Jacob's arrival but after 14, maybe 20 years, they are now very wealthy thanks to Jacob, thanks to Jehovah's blessing on him going back to the promise made to Abraham, feeding into Isaac, feeding into Jacob. Two, and Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. He can see the face of Laban. He can see the look on his face, and he knows that Laban wants to kill him like Esau wanted to do. Three, and the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. What a great word of reassurance. Jacob has got responsibilities now. He's got four wives, 11 children, a lot of cattle. He's got to cover a lot of ground in a pretty quick period of time. Laban is after him with his sons, and the Lord steps in just when you need him the most. Verse 3 and says to him, I will be with thee. Wonderful. For, and Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field unto his flock, and said unto them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not toward me as before, but the God of my father hath been with me. 
So what he's trying to say is this. Number one, I can see the look on your father's face. He wants to do me harm. He thinks he owns me. He thinks he still owns both of you. And yet I've married both of you. And I have uh, begotten, if you will, both of your maidservants. But my God has been with me. My God has preserved me. My God has been my rock. Going back to Jesus Christ being the rock. Jesus Christ being the stone. Yes, he would say to uh, Simon Peter that he was a rock, a pebble. And he would take Simon Peter, a rock and a pebble. And as an apostle, he would be part of the foundation. Known, of course, as the church. But Simon Peter wasn't the rock. Simon Peter wasn't the stone. I mean, Simon Peter, if you want to profile him, was a failure many times. The main sin, one more time, in the Bible is idolatry. But the worst sin for a saved person to commit, I would suggest, is the sin of preaching another gospel. Galatians 1, Galatians 2. Because a, another gospel is a false gospel, and a false gospel cannot save anyone. It will just condemn you. Six, and you know that with all my power, I have served your father. That's true. I don't think you could say that Jacob was a lazy good for nothing. He was a grafter. He would roll up his sleeves. He would put a good 12 hour day in. He would work the ground. He would be the sort of worker that anybody would be more than, uh, more than proud and happy to hire. Seven, and your father hath deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God suffered him not to hurt me. Well, Laban, on the one hand, is a type of Jacob. Laban uh, was a great match for Jacob. Laban was able to indirectly, through the Lord's sovereignty, mold and prepare Jacob for service. And also, wages mentioned ten times, going back to the tithe being a tenth, is an interesting uh, similarity. But God suffered him not to hurt me. Almighty God wouldn't allow Laban to injure Jacob. Almighty God wouldn't allow the Jewish leaders to hurt the Lord Jesus Christ until it was time for him to taste death for every man. 11. And the angel of God spake unto me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here am I, angel of God, probably a Christophany probably Jesus Christ appearing in angelic form to Jacob. 13. I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest a pillar, and where thou vowest a vow unto me. Now arise, and get thee out from this land, and return unto the land of thy kindred. Keep going on, Jacob. It may seem pretty difficult for you, somewhat daunting, but all is well. What does scripture say? If the Lord has begun a good work in us, he will perform it. He will complete it. He will bring it to pass. 14. And Rachel and Leah answered and said unto him, Is there yet any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? I won't say these women were feminists. I won't say that. But I will say they were quite forceful. They were quite forward, shall we say. They weren't shy fool. They would speak up. They would do what they needed to do when 
they needed to do so, which takes me to the subject of female street preachers. And if you see a female street preacher working the streets, your first uh, reaction will be, something's wrong. Like, who is her covering? Who is looking out for her? If she's all alone on the streets, who is giving her some kind of spiritual cover? If her father is a saved man, she will come unto him. If her husband is a saved man, she will come unto him. If she's not married, if she has no father, she will come under a brother in the Lord. At the same time, let me say this, because most men in the body of Christ today are weak and are spineless and aren't prepared to open their mouths like they should, like in season and out of season, what the Lord has done throughout the history of the church is raise up certain odd bods, shall we say, women to do the work of the men. So I'm not going to quickly jump on any sister who street preaches and yet at the same time I won't uh, commend such a sister doing what she does. Maybe I'll come back and discuss that a little more. But here Rachel and Leah are keen to know about their portion or inheritance concerning their father's estate. 15. Are we not counted of him strangers? For he hath sold us, and hath quit, devoured also our money. So they know the fallout is pretty serious. They know that Laban wants to uh, confront Jacob. They know that once the marriage took place, again, no rings were involved, no priests or prophets or ministers were present. Uh, it was uh, conducted through some kind of a feast, some kind of a meal. Once that took place, they were persona non grata, if you will. 16. For the riches which God had taken from our Father, that is ours and our children's. Now then, whatsoever God has said unto thee, do. Kind of bossy. <laughs> in some ways, going back to certain female street preachers. I've also noticed, incidentally, that some of these sisters are married, and some of these sisters have husbands that street preach. So, with that being the case, why are the sisters, why are these brothers' wives preaching? If you are a couple going out, work in the streets, praise the Lord, I'm all with you, and we'll completely support you in that, but brothers, let me ask you please, why are you allowing your wives, your women, to preach on the streets, if you are a preacher yourself? Something's wrong, and I think it's fair to say that for some of those sisters, if the truth be known, they are very much feminists, they are very much believers in women's rights. Middle part of verse 16. Now then, whatsoever God hath said unto thee, do. Very reminiscent. John chapter 2, Mary at the marriage supper in Cana. Whatever he says to you, do it. Those were the most important words that ever came out of the mouth of Mary. 19. And Laban went to shear his sheep. And Rachel had stolen the images that were fathers, images, idols, statues, dollies. 
This is the first mention of idols, images, statues found in scripture and the Lord hates such. He hates any kind of idol, any kind of image. He hates the idea of people needing a prop to somehow aid them in their worship. And of course, the Catholics are the worst for this. If you go into any Catholic church anywhere in the world, it is just filled with statues, objects of worship. You can buy rosary beads, holy water, pictures of your favorite saint, statues, dollies, so on and so forth. And here Rachel is around probably 30-ish, and she's stolen. She's a thief. The images, the idols, that were her father's. What a stupid thing to do. But going back one more time to the fact that the best weren't sinless, weren't perfect, were flawed, were just like you and I. And if you read the scripture carefully, you can, I think many times, see yourself in these Old Testament pages. Paul told us that the Old Testament was written for our admonition, for our learning. It was written so that number one, we wouldn't repeat the same mistakes. And number two, that if we would, or if we did commit the same mistakes, we could learn from them. Because all of the Old Testament greats, one more time, were number one saved by believing on a person, which came through a promise. But the promise is what they believed. A promise was given, and they were saved by believing on a promise. They were saved by their faith in the promise. Number three, they received imputation, faith alone. So it's a promise, faith alone, imputation. Okay? They weren't born again, they weren't regenerated, and the Godhead didn't live within them, which for the New Testament is what those of us which are saved have experienced. But they were still saved by their faith in the one true God, like we are saved by our faith in the one true God. 22, and it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob was fled, and he took his brethren with him and pursued after him seven days journey. And they overtook him in the Mount Gilead, he is infuriated. He knows a good thing when it's gone. And he sees Jacob as this cash cow, perhaps, can I say. Jacob was good for business, but Jacob has been told by the Lord to pack up and get out. Like uh, Abraham will be told to pack up and get out. And here Jacob is doing what he was told to do, living by faith. 24, and God came to Laban, the Syrian, in a dream by night, and said unto him, Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. Be careful, Laban. That man is a chosen vessel. And that man will produce one more child, being in Benjamin. That man is a chosen vessel. Those children are chosen vessels. The livestock is preserved. Keep your hands off such. 26. And Laban said to Jacob, What hast thou done? That thou hast stolen away unawares to me and carried away my daughters as captives, taken with the sword. Well, not quite uh, the case, somewhat of, a, of uh, an exaggeration, but he's angry. He's also somewhat fearful because the Lord has appeared to him in a dream. And I would suggest that if you've had a dream, if you've ever dreamed, or if you've ever received a dream by the Lord, Old Testament or New Testament, or perhaps even for today, 
you don't want to take it lightly. You are probably forever changed if you've been the recipient of such a dream. But Jacob wasn't violent. Now, it's true to say down the line, his sons would be uh, very violent when they get word that their sister was raped and they would just kill everyone from that village and take their uh, booty, as it was referred to, for their own. And uh, Jacob, when he gets wind of the action of his sons, is just appalled by their behavior. And as Genesis concludes, some of those uh, boys, some of those men miss out on blessings, which in a, in a way pictures our relationship with the Lord. It pictures our crowns. It pictures our place in the millennial kingdom. Let's keep reading on. Uh, verse 29, please. It is in the power of my hand to do you hurt. But the God of your father spake unto me yesternight, saying, Take thou heed that thou speak not good, that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. And now, though thou wouldest needs be gone, because thou saw longest after the father's house, yet wherefore hast thou stolen my goods? So Laban is partly correct. Laban is partly honest in what he says. Yes, he could have done Jacob harm. He's got his servants with him. I mean, if you look at the, the, uh, the manpower that Laban has been able to mobilize very quickly, had they wanted to, they could have just destroyed Jacob, taken the girls and the kids back to Laban's estate. But the Lord steps in and warns Laban not to do so. But what Laban is really interested in is the latter part of verse 30. Yet wherefore hast thou stolen my gods, my idols, my images, my statues, my statues? Where are they, Jacob? Now, Jacob isn't aware that uh, Rachel, verse 19, has done this. Jacob wasn't aware from verse 19 that Rachel has done this. I think it's fair to say that Jacob had a lot on his mind. He wasn't thinking about his wife behaving in such an awful manner. And he probably didn't know his wife all that well either. He was too busy trying to keep a roof over their heads, if you will. 32. With whomsoever thou findest thy gods, let him not live. Before our brethren discern thou what is thine with me, and take it to thee. For Jacob knew not that Rachel had stolen them. Like I say, he had no idea what she had done. And on top of that, he has decreed it that whoever is found with the gods, the idols, the statues, would die. Never in a thousand years did it come into his mind that Rachel, his beloved wife, will be guilty of such an awful thing. 33. And Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the two maidservants' tents, but he found them not. Then went he out of Leah's tent and entered into Rachel's tent. This man is desperate to find them. This man wants his statues back. He wants his idols back. He wants his rosary beads back. He wants his Saint Jude picture, his Saint Christopher picture. He wants his picture of Pope Paul II. He wants his statue of Mary returned. 
34. Now Rachel had taken the images and put them in the camel's furniture and sat upon them. And Laban searched all the tent but found them not. So she has planned this and she knows that her father is searching for them and she continues to cover up her sins. It was bad enough that she stole them in the first place. Why she would want them, uh, one can only imagine. I mean, she's in the line of the Messiah. She's produced, uh, she has produced Joseph. She will produce Benjamin. I mean, that should be enough for any woman back in the Old Testament. But as Solomon would say, man is never satisfied. Man, and in this case woman, wants something more. And here she is determined to hide these pagan images, statues, idols from her father, no doubt from Babylon, some kind of wickedness. 35, and she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise up before thee. For the custom of women is upon me. And he searched, but found not the images. Now she lies. She says, Father, don't come too near to me. It's my time of the month. So she steals, wrong. She covers up, wrong. And she lies, wrong. But she's saved. And I can't find her repenting of this either. Going back to Abraham and the concubines. Going back to Abraham's behavior with those slaves. And we don't know how old those concubines were either. We don't know how old those concubines were either. Going back to Aisha and Muhammad, I don't want to say that those concubines were as young as Aisha, probably not. But I would imagine that Abraham's concubines were in their teens, early teens, mid-teens, late teens. I would imagine that was the case, but we don't know that for sure. I'm just taking a guess, but I don't think that his concubines were as young as Aisha. 36, and Jacob was wroth and chode with Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, what is my trespass? What is my sin that thou hast so hotly pursued after me? He doesn't know what's going on. The Lord hasn't said to Jacob, by the way, your favorite wife has stolen her father's images. He doesn't tell Jacob that. Jacob is ignorant as to what has taken place. And that's why he is so incredulated that his stepfather, excuse me, his father-in-law, <laughs> I correct myself, his father-in-law has tracked him down and is now searching the tents of his wife's and their servants for his idols. I mean, that's kind of embarrassing. I mean, Jacob was the head of his family and here his uh, father-in-law, is just breezing in, calling the shots. What is my trespass? What is my sin that thou hast so hotly pursued after me? He has no idea what is going on. And like I say from verse 32, he makes it very clear that whoever was found with the images would have to die. And the Lord, one more time, working behind the scenes, Romans 8.28, spares Rachel, spares the discovery of pagan images because had they been found Rachel would have been executed and Benjamin would not have been born. 41 Thus have I been 20 years in thy house. I served thee 14 years for thy two daughters and six years for thy cattle. 
and thou hast changed my wages ten times. Now it's going to pour out. He feels disgruntled. He feels hard done by. He feels that he has a right to complain. Except the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely thou hast sent me away now empty. God hath seen mine affliction and the labour of my hands, and rebuked thee yesternight. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. On this point, Jacob was on good ground. On this particular subject, Jacob wasn't out of the will of the Lord hadn't been misbehaving, shall we say, hadn't been plotting, hadn't been uh, scheming, hadn't been conniving, did what was expected of him. But going back to the two wives and the uh, handmaidens, the Lord wouldn't explicitly uh, condemn that nor condone it. The law, Exodus chapter 20, was given to, if you will, uh, set in motion how people should live. Israel got a bit of rights and they had to follow it to the letter because although the patriarchs had one more time concubines, maids, uh, servants, so on and so forth, they were expected to treat them well with respect. They weren't like animals or third-class citizens. Uh, 43. And Laban answered and said unto Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and these cattle are my cattle, and all that thou seest is mine. And what can I do this day unto these my daughters, or unto their children which they have born? No, they weren't his children. Scripture says that when a man meets a woman, they are to uh, leave their parents behind and become one flesh. Jacob has spent 20 years serving, working for his daughters, or Laban's daughters, which will become his wives. But this goes back to the sense of ownership, like these are my daughters indefinitely. Their children are my children indefinitely. No, the marriage took place not like one more time today's marriage. It took place, no priest present, no prophet, no minister, no ring, no kind of religious service, just a marriage ceremony of some kind. And once flesh meets flesh, once Jacob went in and lay with his wives, that constituted a marriage from the standpoint of the scripture. 44, now therefore come thou, let us make a covenant, I and thou, let it be for witness between me and the covenant and agreement. Laban knows that time is against him. He knows that Jacob is going to leave the land, go back to his forefathers. He knows that Jacob is someone special, shall we say, chosen for service. And again, Romans 8.28 is in the background working all things out for good. At the same time, the devil is never far away. No doubt he's been watching us very carefully, trying to mess things up. 45, and Jacob took a stone and set it up for a pillar. Going back to my analogy of a stone, a rock, foreshadowing the, event, uh, the uh, eventual uh, Jewish temple and the church with the prophets, apostles, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
making up the entire foundation. 48. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between me and thee this day. Therefore was the name of it called Galid. And Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent one from another. So the rock is a type of Christ, and that's why Moses got into trouble when he uh, hit the rock. I think it was twice from the book of Numbers he was told to speak to the rock, and he lost his temper and he struck it twice. I seem to recall a picture of contempt, and that rock, of course, is a type of Christ. Same kind of theme here. Uh, verse 50, If thou shalt afflict my daughters, or if thou shalt take other wives beside my daughters, no man is with me. See, God is witness betwixt me and thee. So, it's partly fair to say that Laban is partly trying to secure the welfare of his daughters and their children, but at the same time he knows that Times are changing, and once Jacob has left, he's not coming back. And also, he mentions God. Latter part of verse fifty is witness betwixt me and thee. Verse uh, fifty-three: the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge betwixt us. And Jacob swear by the fear of his father Isaac. So if you take an oath, if you promise to do something, and if you bring the Lord's name into such an oath, such a promise, you better keep it. And it's fair to say that such an oath, such a promise, is still valid for today as well. 54. Then Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount, and called his brethren to eat the bread, and they did eat bread and tarried all night in the mount. Sacrifice, thanksgiving, going back to Jacob, giving a tenth as a sign of gratitude towards God. And here Jacob will offer sacrifice upon the mount and would call his brethren to eat bread. And they did eat bread and tarried all night in the mount. So this is a final meal, if you will. This is a final get-together if you will, until they go their own ways. 55, and I will close. And early in the morning, Laban rose up and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned unto his place. So what you've seen and what you've been uh, reading over the last hour and 40-something minutes is how things would take place pre the law. You've seen... Rachel, a saved woman, I believe, saved by faith, pre the law, behaving shamefully, and the Lord doesn't just cut her down. He allows it to run its course because, like I say, he has a plan. He had a plan for Rachel. He had a plan for Leah. He had a plan for the two handmaids. In fact, I don't think those handmaids, no doubt Syrian, uh, when they were uh, bought, by Laban to serve his daughters could ever have imagined that one day they would be producing the future sons of Israel. Which just goes to show that sometimes you can be in the will of the Lord and not know it until much later. It's so interesting to read. And yet, like I say, Genesis is pre the law. You've got the patriarchs, their wives, very much operating by faith, 
not having all of the facts at their disposal, having to live by faith like the just shall live by faith, paying a huge price, hanging in there, not walking away when the going got tough. Jacob would spend many years uh, working for his uncle, and like I say, that was in preparation for Jacob becoming Israel, becoming a nation, becoming a people. We don't know how much of this Jacob really understood. We don't know how much this uh, Abraham really understood, or Isaac. We don't know how much the apostles really understood. They would spend three and a half years with Jesus, and he would say that one day he'd go back to heaven, and they would have a greater understanding, a greater knowledge of future events. I don't suppose that uh, John ever thought he would be uh, shown future events during his uh, incarceration on the Isle of uh, Patmos. I don't think Paul ever thought one day he'd be taken up to the third heaven and shown future events. I don't think Peter ever thought that he would be, on the one hand, commending the Lord and, on the next hand, condemning the Lord. I don't think Peter thought for one moment that he would be worshipping the Lord one moment and denying him the next. I don't think most of the men in the New Testament had any real understanding of the enormity of their lives. I don't even think uh, the writers of the New Testament knew that what they would write would survive right up until the present. I mean, the Bible is the most sold book in the world. It's thousands of years old. In fact, most books that get written go out of circulation within 30 years. And the Bible remains the most sold book in the world. And when people read it, it will change their lives forever. So three chapters from the open air pulpit. And as always, I've tried to cover as much ground as I possibly can. I am fascinated by what these men and women went through, how the women would produce so far 11 children in anticipation for the future state of Israel. Yes, it could have fallen to, like I say, Jacob and Rachel, or just Jacob and Leah, but the Lord allows the saints, his saints, to many times do their thing experience the uh, consequences of their actions. Jacob would appear at times to be weak. Jacob would listen to his wife's like going to uh, Billa or uh, Zippah and he would do so and you know the rest of course they would give uh, their mistresses children. But the promise had been given back to Isaac and Rebekah. How Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And again, Jacob is Israel. Jacob is Israel. Esau is Edom. Two nations, two peoples. And that statement, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, was written hundreds of years after the death of both men. So you can't say that the Lord decided to hate one boy 
and despise the other, feeding into Calvinism like the Lord hates most of the world, will send most of the world to hell, loves a few like the church and only wants the church to be saved. You can't get that from scripture. Through the Lord's foreknowledge, he knows everything of course. And when he gave the promise to Isaac and Rebekah, he knew what their boys would do. He knew how the parents would handle that situation. And he didn't just jump in the moment it looked like it was going to go south, as they say. He allowed it to run its course. And unfortunately, along the way, Esau was the, uh, the hard-done-by party, shall we say. Jacob was pictured as a, as a, as a schemer, as a uh, supplanter, as uh, somebody rather conniving. And it's also fair to say that I think most people today, especially those in the holiness movement, when they read verses such as this, would uh, find it very difficult to relate to such people, to associate with such people. Because most holiness people give an outward uh, presentation of themselves as being upright, uh, upright, well-to-do, and they look down their noses on those that don't live like they live. And yet, if they were to spend five minutes with uh, Rachel or Jacob or Leah, they would probably walk out the room in five minutes. Nothing in common with such people. And yet those three people, I believe, were saved. They were saved in spite of themselves, not because of themselves. Those people would need a saviour, like you need a saviour, like I need a saviour. Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So I think I will close it there. Uh, chapters 29, 30 and 31. And you've seen how the Lord's people handle any given situation. They're not uh, exempt from falling. They weren't perfect. I think Rachel comes out the worst for the theft of her father's idols, the cover-up of the theft and the lie, the lies that followed the cover-up and the theft. But as I said, the Lord was working the background and he was able to stop Laban finding his daughter and killing her. So next time, Lord willing, we will look at 32 and beyond and read more about the man Jacob, like has he mellowed or is he still the old schemer? Just because the Old Testament greats weren't born again, just because the Old Testament greats didn't have two natures, unlike those of us for the New Testament, doesn't mean that they weren't able to experience blessings, like I say, and also the Lord's chastisement. It's also fair to say that, although we're not told explicitly what the Lord thought of some of the shenanigans, some of the uh, decisions made by Jacob and co., it's quite fair to say that he was working the background to probably, to probably chastise uh, Jacob and also to deal with the sins of uh, Rachel, who would later go on to die. But anyway, by the grace of God, I've been able to uh, finish my three chapters.
and let me just say, if I may, just for the the, uh, the remaining few moments I have before my uh, camera cuts out, that this is a real location. Somebody left a comment on one of my other videos asking if this was some kind of a, uh, a green shot. A green shot is what you see on films. If you see a movie, for example, and you've got a couple of characters uh, driving a car, for example, and you think they're in a literal car on a literal street, when in reality they're in a studio and they have a screen behind the car. They're in a car, but the car in the studio isn't a real car, it's just a model. And they have what looks like a real street behind them as they're driving down the road, but it's what you call a green shot. It's not a real background. Well, this is a real background. I mean, the wind is pretty, uh, pretty windy. The microphone is flapping about, and you can see people occasionally walking behind me. In fact, if I just jump out a camera shot, you can probably see as far as the eye will allow. This is a real location. This is my uh, open air pulpit. I've been uh, coming here for seven years now. And uh, by the grace of God, I've been able to make maybe 200 videos from here. So there's no trick photography. This isn't a, uh, a green shot. This isn't a studio. This is a literal location where I like to make my videos from. There's enough deception online. There's enough uh, trickery online. There are enough people that offer themselves as the Lord's people, uh, saying what they say and doing what they do and are not. They are deceiving people. But uh, this is a real location. I'm a real person speaking about real subjects concerning real people. Because like I say, what the greats went through uh, is a good example for us not to follow likewise. And if they, and when they would fall, and they would fall, we can hopefully avoid the same kind of pitfalls. But I think for now, you've had enough, over, one, uh, over an hour and 50 minutes, I can just about make out the screen. Uh, the glare is very strong, so I will now sign out. Wish you every blessing. And as always, join me this coming Sunday as I return to 2 Corinthians. And uh, this coming Sunday, if you are keen to know, I will be looking at uh, chapter 7. Chapter 7, and it'll be part 2. I've got probably three more months to spend working uh, through 2 Corinthians and probably three to five more visits uh, to the open air pulpit as I aim to conclude. Uh, the book of Genesis. I do hope you've been reading along with me. I hope uh, you have your Bibles open. We are, as uh, Bible believers, entitled to our own views, our own thoughts on different things, but we need to be careful that we don't spend too much time speculating, assuming this or that. We want to read as much scripture as we can, especially those of us which have teaching ministries, and show people what the scripture says, not what we think it says. We go by the word of God. This is our final authority. And as I say, you can research the greats until the cows come home, and you won't find anyone in either testament who was completely perfect 24-7. But if you look at Jesus Christ, on the other hand, you can't fault him. As hard as you look, 
whether you're saved or skeptic, as hard as you look, you can't find faults with Jesus Christ from his conception to his crucifixion, sinless, perfect. And that's why it's always great to boast about him, to brag about him. But people like Abraham, flawed, Isaac flawed, Jacob flawed, we don't trust in those men to save us. We are trusting in a man, the man Christ Jesus, to save us. We can see the mistakes that they made, Abraham with the concubines, the young girls, producing children, as a result of him lying with them. We don't need to uh, duplicate or replicate his sins, his mistakes. Isaac, Jacob would also be flawed from top to bottom. And yet in spite of all that, in spite of all that, the Lord chose them, preserved them, and I believe also saved them. That's a great promise. They were saved in spite of themselves, not because of themselves. True for them, and it's true for us as well. And on that statement, I will sign out and wish you every blessing and happiness in the name of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.